This episode of Channel My News is for information only. Please do your own research before making any investment decision or alternatively seek advice from a registered financial advisor. Righto, g'day ladies and gents. Welcome to Friday's edition of Channel Mine News. Week one, Matty Michael here, Life Mine Podcast, the go-to mining news for your ears. Helping all the multitaskers and drivers out there. Hope you've enjoyed it this week. Righto, let's go over what's been happening. ASX 200 sitting at 71.92. US uh, shares rose overnight on jobless claims data. ASX 200 is down 100 points week to date. hasn't moved too much. Aussie dollar sitting at 67.72. US cents down 0.7 overnight, down from 68.2 cents week to date. Gold sitting at 17.90, pretty flat. Same as iron ore, 107 bucks a ton. Copper, again, flat at 83.33 US a ton, $3.85 a pound. Nickel continues its rise, one point. 6.9% up to 28,700 bucks US a ton, up from 27,100 week to date. So nickel, nickel, a quite little achiever for the week. Now, crude oil, oil's had a bit of a movement. Oil's had more movement than bloody equities this week. So WTI crude oil, that's your uh, West Texas Intermediate, the benchmark for US light oil. 72 bucks US dollars a barrel. It was $75 early last night and then dove. It's down from 85.50 week to date, down 10%. Now, Brent crude. Now, Brent is your benchmark used for the light oil market in Europe, Africa, and Middle East, pretty much everywhere except from America, sitting at $76.45 US a barrel. So that's dropped 10% this week as well. Now, Reasoning, reasoning for this, we're going to bring in a bit of an expert after this, give give a bit of insight. But a lot of analysts are saying all it should be going. The all the indicators are saying it should be going up, but it's actually going down. If you take into account, there's a there's an oil leak in Nebraska at the moment in the Keystone Pipeline, which goes from Canada down to Cushing, and they don't know how long it's going to take to fix it. So there's going to be some a supply issue there whether that was the dive in end of trade. Uh, there's big declines in crude inventories as well. Now, if China comes back online out of COVID zero, they're anticipating that could require another one to one and a half million barrels per day, which should support a rising oil price, but it is still in decline. So for a bit more further analysis on this oil saga and a bit of talk on the macro and the lithium market, I'm going to bring in Tim Weir from Precision Funds Management. How are you, Tim? Not too good today, mate. Yeah, I've, I've come down with uh, bloody COVID from a trip over east, but uh, uh, yeah, no, I'm uh, actually right as rain. <laughs> well, that's good to hear. Good to hear this version's not as bad. Now, mate, went through the macro stuff before, the only everything, you know, all the news through the week, up and down, yada, yada, we end up in the bloody same spot. So, uh, but the only one that, the main one that has moved is the both the crude oil prices. So, look, down from, where were we, 80-odd bucks, 85 bucks start of the week, Brent's down to 76, and it seems yep. to be going down when we think it should be going up with China possibly easing the COVID zero policy. There's a oil leak in Nebraska in a, in the Keystone Pipeline, which would be affecting supply there. But 
Uh, everything's pointing to a lift in the price, but we're going down. What's your sort of take on this whole yeah. thing? I, I think, um, Matt, whenever they, whenever you hear the word recession um, started to be murmured around, it, it always does spark a bit of negativity, and uh, that has flowed on into the oil price. So, it, you know, that that is going to, I think that rhetoric will really hot up moving into the first quarter of next year, you know, because you'll have rates in the US, you know, probably another 50 basis point rate rise next week in the US, then you'll have a break in January, um, and then you'll probably get another 50 basis points in uh, February, and I reckon that's when the uh, recession um, uh, commentary will st start to crank up. So that's sort of playing itself out and uh, putting pressure on the oil price. Now, with the Chinese COVID story, it, it, there's a lot of conflicting information out there um, with regard to China, actually. Are they actually doing anything or, or are they still adhering to a zero COVID policy? And it's fair to say the measures that they're putting in place to try and loosen up that policy are pretty lame. Um, you know, they're talking about letting people, uh, um, you know, isolate at home rather than these, you know, I call them concentration camps, but, uh, you know, it, it all leads to, uh, you know, some concern about the rate of EV take-up in uh, uh, China and also uh, uh, just has a, a dent on general demand across the board and uh, hence the oil price has taken a hit on the back of, uh, you know, potential uh, reduction in Chinese uh, demand. So, yeah, all these factors are weighing on the oil price at the moment. So is the essentially all the little bits of news coming out this week are being well outweighed by the overall fear that of the, oh, I guess, your UK-US recession following these extra rate rises? Yep, it, it, it's very it, – there's and there's a lot of conflicting uh, economic information coming out of the US at the moment with regard to, you know, they had some really positive jobs data which would, you know, suggest that uh, the economy is still pretty robust and, you know, the, the recession may not – it'll be a short recession if, if indeed they need to have one. Uh, but it seems to be overridden by the fact that the uh, Fed seems determined to uh, uh, keep on rising uh, rates, as I said earlier. And uh, ultimately, that will lead to, you know, the, the price to pay for that will be a recession. And it's just a matter of, you know, how hard the hit is. But they're sort of factoring in at the moment that, uh, you know, the demand slowdown is going to kick in, I reckon, in the first quarter of next year and uh, preempting that into the oil price today. So I said you correctly predicted the last uh, suckers rally, which we uh, noted in one of our previous podcasts. Um, <laughs> what's your... Uh, funds like yourself keeping a bit of cash on the sidelines for another potential dip next year if this uh, recession does come to fruition or what's the outlook oh, there? 100%, yeah, no, definitely, um, you know, taking a bit off the table, um, you know, we, we'll uh, uh, definitely have a strong liquidity position uh, between now and going into end of uh, first quarter next, next year uh, in anticipation that you'll also get corporate America starting to report, you know, probably maybe some lower earnings, but also giving uh, some uh, less than optimistic forecasts into the future. And uh, I think that could coincide with the, the, the bear market, if you like, that we're supposedly in, um, sort of probably reaching a bit of a trough um, around that period of time. And, and then I reckon it'll, it'll prove to be a fantastic buying opportunity because I'm 
you know, proponent for what I think will be a fairly short-lived uh, recession, barring any black swan event. But, um, uh, you know, I think it will be short and sharp. And, uh, you know, you'll be starting to look at rate cuts in the sort of, you know, late in the third to fourth quarter uh, of uh, 2023. Now, a bit of, bit of lithium while we've got you, Weary, a bit of, uh, I guess, a bit of a pullback, you'd say, a bit of lithium news, like Widgie Nickel put out their drill results. Um, they went down sort of 18% yesterday with yep. the, whether the, the grade didn't really hit the mark. Latin Resources put out their maiden mineral resource, which was pretty much identical to red dirts um they haven't and they've got a lot of putting sixty five thousand meters of drilling into the ground this year with a lot of prospects but they didn't move much either where's sort of the whole lithium market sitting at the moment i think from a share market perspective maddie it's 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 all got a bit of exhaustion at the moment it's sort of uh, you know all the uh, stocks reached fever pitch there for a while um uh, going back a a month or so and i i think it's just uh uh, you know, just suffering from a, a bit of peak cycle. And, you know, I, I think there's, uh, in anticipation, the market in general uh, will have a breather. There's profit taking, um, there's cashing up. Um, it, you're going into, a, you know, obviously the holiday season in Australia. And I, I think it's just all a bit of a yawn uh, at, at the moment. Um, the actual underlying lithium price is only remaining strong. And, uh, you know, the fundamentals are, are, are still pretty robust, um, despite there being some sort of speculation as to the take up in China. Um, but I think with the, you know, the sort of, you know, even the red dirts and, and the early stage guys, um, you know, that, that speculative fizz um, has really come out of the market a bit. So uh, um, these stocks will all have a bit of a, uh, uh, you know, just a bit of a... Uh, sleep in the process and i don't think it's a bad thing and uh you know the cream will come to the top because i think the sector is still alive and well and those that can capitalize from a production perspective on this super profit type uh, uh scenario that we're seeing at the moment probably still has another you know good year or two to play out is that is the core lithiums the direct shipping contract they sorted the other the other month um is that going to be a bit of a theme with a lot of these producers that are going to try to get some quick money out of the ground with direct shipping or instead of going down the processing side a hundred percent i mean uh, you, you've said uh, david flanagan from red dirt has already come out and said you know that's their uh, aim is to uh, uh you know that within he's saying they can have direct shipping or out of mount ida uh in 12 months and uh, so, you know, it makes a lot of sense for these guys. And, you know, he just raised uh, $55 million, uh, to go and exhaust that opportunity. So I think it's a smart way of doing it for those that have got, an, you know, an existing real resource that stacks up. Um, get it into the market as soon as possible. Get some cash flow. Uh, and then uh, uh, let's see if you're uh, in a position in, uh, you know, 18 months, two years' time where you've still got it. Uh, a solid lithium price to go ahead and spend all that capex to build a processing facility on site. No, good stuff, mate. Oh, thanks very much for that uh, insight. No worries. Very much appreciated, mate. Hope you give the give the lungs a rest um, and back fight and fit next week. Look, there's just another typical testament to precision funds management down with COVID, but still have the time and energy to give back to the community. Good on you, weary. So I hope everyone had a good listen to the AVZ coverage I provided yesterday. Very interesting regarding the biggest lithium deposit by a country mile 
in the world, biggest hard rock lithium deposit. Pretty intense saga, legal battle over, over ownership between AVZ and Dathomir, which is a Cong Congolese mining company in the DRC, and also with Jin Cheng, a Chinese mining company, investment company, claiming ownership as well. So a lot going on there, arbitration proceedings through the International Chamber of Commerce. So I thought we'd get a bit of further legal analysis on what's going on with the arbitration proceedings. And I've called in Sam Gillis, Senior Associate at Ashurst, to provide this. How are you, Cobber? Yeah, good. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Oh, absolute pleasure, mate. You're actually the first guest of the Modern Channel More News over the phone. So congratulations. I'll make a T-shirt for you. Now, this AVZ debacle, mess, saga, whatever you want to call it, whatever you want to call it, two arbitration uh cases in progress at the moment if anyone wants a bit more info go back to yesterday's episode on the avz to get the full backstory but can you give us a bit of context sam on this icc international chamber of commerce arbitration and how that works for international disputes like this yeah of course so the international chamber of commerce is is exactly as you've described it there it's an international arbitration um process or hearing that are, that's available to uh, companies that kind of have um, transactions with an international flair with them and, and cross multiple jurisdictions. And it's often kind of relied upon as being a, a place to settle disputes where you've got contracting parties that sit in multiple jurisdictions, which is, you know, kind of the, the similar case we've got here because we've got um, AVZ, which is obviously listed uh, on the ASX, um, and, uh, and then you've got the involvement of the Democratic Republic of Congo as well, which is probably notorious for not having um, the most sound legal system. And um, and so that's, that makes it kind of a perfect storm for, for resorting to the, the ICC um, to resolve this particular dispute. And then you've obviously got the second arbitration between AVZ and Jin Chang Mining, which is a Chinese-based company. That adds another yes. layer to the another layer to the onion yes yeah i mean you described it perfectly i think at the start there it is an absolute mess um you've got two two arbitration proceedings currently on the go and it sounds as if avz will bring a third one and that's only because they had two separate um sale purchase agreements um with dathomir and and so what what will most likely end up happening i would bet all my money on it is these the three arbitration proceedings will get consolidated into one arbitration proceeding, and that's because they are they are kind of related disputes. Now, there's kind of some some often there's strategic kind of thoughts around whether or not it's better to consolidate or not. So you might find that some some of the parties don't want to consolidate and they want to keep them separate. Um, that might be the case, particularly for for Jin Jin Chang, if it doesn't want to get you know drawn in and wrapped up. In the in the other proceedings, the other two proceedings between Dathomir and um, and ABZ, but I think certainly ABZ would be trying to consolidate because um, that does have some time synergies and would probably reduce the time required to kind of resolve both of those issues. So, so that financial report that came out from the, I guess it was like the finance minister for the, minister for the DRC looked like it was favourable favourable towards AVZ and mm. looks like they've sort of done the right thing. What's in it for 
both Dathomir and Jin Chang, like, are they clutching at straws with the ICC arbitration or is there a possibility they may get some ownership and or there'll be a settlement agreement? Because the longer this goes on, the more shareholder money that's consumed for legal proceedings for the AVZ shareholders, there would be some element of wanting to get it sorted quickly because it could go on for two years, couldn't it? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, these these arbitrations, particularly of, of site, you know, the money we're talking about here, um, I wouldn't be surprised to see this go on for at least six to 12 months and, and there's, yeah, every possibility that it goes on longer. The one, I think the one interesting thing from from a from a legal perspective, is this concept of having a a statutory right of first sorry a right of first refusal sounds like it was being, was given under contract, but you've got this statutory position which is if you don't um, give that first right of refusal, then any subsequent transaction is null and void. And I was trying to have a, a dip through what what um, what's described as the OHADAR Uniform Act rules, which apparently the Democratic Republic of Congo have, have adopted, um, which is fascinating. Go DRC. Yeah. <laughs> well, apparently, and this is news to me, them and 16 other African nations have adopted these uniform laws. Um, and I suppose it's in, a, it's in an attempt to try and encourage um, cross-border investment and things like that, um, so that you've got some guarantees. But there is some really interesting stuff here. Um, this, this part about, you know, uh, your transaction being null and void if you don't offer the the right of first refusal is one in particular that's, that's very interesting. Um, and I think certainly it's kind of hard to, if the, if the shares have really been transferred to Jin Cheng, for example, that particular holding, I think AVZ is going to have a very difficult time clawing those, those shares back, um, even if it is trying to rely on this kind of uniform act, because and that's because the transfer has happened. So I think what they'll have to demonstrate in that situation, if they wanted to claw the shares back as their remedy, they would have to demonstrate that Jin Cheng kind of knew about the right of first refusal and therefore didn't enter into the contract as a as a, what we call a bona fide purchaser, which is like a, a purchaser of good conscience, consciousness in many ways. It doesn't sound like there's much good consciousness going on <laughs> in this whole saga. Now, do you think this stock will remain suspended in trading for the entire until these arbitration proceedings are all completed? I'm, I'm not actually much of an expert on ASX listing rules, so I'm, I'm not sure, but certainly it's it's because of the size of that project um you know you mentioned it on the podcast yesterday it's it's something like the second biggest lithium mine it's oh it's um, the biggest it's the biggest it's the second highest grade but it's the biggest in grade. tonnage and resource by absolute country mile huge yeah and, and given avz's you know current share position they're trading at what 50 50 cents when they closed in may is that right uh, 78, I'm pretty sure. 78, 78 cents, yep. So it's two and a half billion dollar company, but they were up to about four billion, um, at their yeah. peak before the bloody shit hit the fan <laughs> because it's, it's going to have such an impact on their share price. It's quite possible that they wouldn't be able to resume trading until they have an answer. Um, so I, it, from my you know, my personal view is that while the arbitration proceedings continue, I think there's a strong possibility that the parties will try to get together and settle it on the side. 
um, and then discontinue the arbitration proceedings. I think that would be probably, if they can get something that seems fair and reasonable, that would probably be the best outcome for ABZ because then they would be able to relist and kind of get on with their business. Um, and, you know, it might seem unlikely, but maybe even work together with Jin Cheng, but that, you know, that, <laughs> that wouldn't exactly be a match made in heaven, would it? Well, isn't it? Um, yeah, jealousy's a curse, isn't it? Because this uh, everyone <laughs> wants a piece of this resource no matter what it takes. So, yeah. uh, And there's probably a lot of uh, nervous shareholders awaiting what happens with their suspended shares currently. Mate, that's a great sum up. Thanks so much for providing a bit of expert analysis, mate, and we'll definitely be. You're now officially life of mine's legal guru. So you will, be, you will be back on. Really appreciate that, mate. Have a good weekend. Not a problem. Thanks for having me again, Matt. Now, another interesting piece of information that we forgot to mention in that that Sam dug up was a sole arbitrator was appointed for this ICC hearing, which is actually pretty unusual. Normally, it's a panel of arbitrators. So when you've got a sole arbitrator, there's obviously a lot of pressure on them to make a decision they might and depending on their background it like might influence the way the decision goes so that's another little interesting aspect now that we're all over avz i'll keep you all posted as the new flight news flow comes in very interesting right let's get into a bit of mining news this one coming out yesterday i didn't get time to chuck it in latin resources ticker lrs released its maiden mineral resource estimate for the Kalina lithium deposit. So this is part of its flagship Selenius lithium project in Brazil. Now, Latin Resources trading at 13 cents, market cap 264 mil. They're up to 21 cents earlier in the year. Now, they're sitting pretty flat today. Now, this maiden mineral resource, 13.3 million tonne at 1.2% lithium oxide, indicated and inferred. Most of it is inferred. 11.2 million tonne is inferred and 2 million, two and a bit million tonne is indicated. Now, that's very similar to the red dirt resource that they released as well. So red dirts was 12.7 million tonne at 1.2%. So 600,000 tonne less. So very, very similar. Give you a bit of context. Latin resources, their market cap is 264 mil. Red dirts is 159 million. Uh, Latin resources, they've got 29 million in the bank at, at the end of September quarter. So, and they're going to need that for all the drilling that's coming up, which I'll go through. So Plenty of upside at this, according to the announcement, because recent drilling at the Kalina West Prospect is 500 metres to the west of the Kalina deposit that's just had the resource released, uh, showing numerous thick high-grade spodumene hits. It looks a bit more deeper, bigger, more veiny, not as continuous, just looking at the cross-section, but there's uh, plenty of upside at that deposit as well. So that'll be the next uh, next cab off the rank. So aggressive 65,000 metre drilling campaign planned for 2023 with the addition of four more drilling rigs to have a total of eight on site to design to fast track the rapid resource growth at Kalina and Kalina West and underpin a rapid move towards future development. Now, looking at the cross-section so the Kalina deposit as i said looks a bit more uniform whereas the Kalina west looks like a lot more stringer 
string of veins over like uh, the intersections of, you know, 1.8 metres, 2.2, 2.7. So the query question I have for people out there, if anyone is experts on this, because my understanding is that with lithium, dilution is the biggest factor in extraction due to lithium. The lithium has to be as pure as possible to get battery grade lithium. So, sorry, the spodumene has to be as undiluted as possible. So, I would assume that veiny deposits like this one, if you do see it, comes a lot of, I guess, harder work to ensure that dilution is controlled. And if anyone's got some information on the progress of ore sorting technology, how this is going, whether that's feasible, happening, please let us know. I'd love to hear about it. But uh, that's something that has to be considered with lithium extraction is control of dilution which when you're dealing with one to two meter veins stringers that would be an issue so i look forward to hearing a bit of feedback on that people let us know so as i said sixty-five thousand meters of drilling to be conducted at this brazilian deposit so latin resources executive director chris gale commented not chris gale the west indian cricketer uh he said the company's now very focused to continue growth of the lithium resource over the next six months as well as completing a feasibility study to fast track development of this project. So the question to consider would be, where is that optimal lithium grade sitting at? When Red Dirt released their mineral resource estimate, 1.2%, they went down in trade that day. Latin hasn't moved too much on 1.2%. As I said the day before, yesterday, Widgie Nickel released this assays uh, 10 metres at sub 1%, at 0.9%. They retraced 18%. Um, so it's looking like the the happy happy medium for grade is going to be above 1.2%. Kathleen Valley, the next big deposit coming online in Australia is at 1.4%. Uh, and, you know, as we said, God, AVZ, they're up at one6 But seems like 1.2% might not be hitting the mark. And as Tim Weir previously explained, Possibly the lithium has been a bit overcooked, bit of money coming out of it. The smaller explorers, the lower grade seems to be suffering at the moment. So we'll keep an eye on that. Next, cab off the rank. Mencor, ticker MCR, the Aussie-based nickel producer focused in the Cambalda area. $1.58 trading today, down 20 cents year to date, $775 million market cap. They are in a trading hold regarding an equity raise. This seems like the round number that everyone uses, 60 million. I swear everyone raises 60 million. 55 million in a play, fully underwritten placement and 5 million for a share purchase plan. So eligible Aussie and Kiwi shareholders are able to purchase up to 30,000 bucks worth of shares. Offer price at $1.39, which is a 14.4% discount. Now, the use of these funds will be going to towards accelerating development into the Golden Mile deposit, which is at the Cambalda North, which is originally known as uh, Longshaft. Accelerate underground diamond drilling at Cassini. That's their high-grade flagship project, you'd say. I assume it's their flagship project. And strengthen and de-risk the balance sheet, another one that everyone, they all say. So that's $60 million bucks. Uh, they've got that $30 million bucks in the bank at 30th no, at the end of November. So from that 90 mil, 20 million is going into the Golden Mile development and 25 going into the Cassini acceleration of exploration. 50 million left over for working capital. 
and say, let's go over, I guess, what Northern Operations and Cassini are all about. Let's give you a bit of context. So the Golden Mile load sits adjacent, looking at the cross-section here, I haven't been underground there, sits adjacent to the long existing reserve, which has got the long shaft. Uh, then you've got the Durkin North further out from that, and there's an existing connection between Long and Durkin. So Golden Mile sits in the middle. So it looks like they're going to attack it from above and below, uh, incline and decline. Looks like it's connecting from the cross-section. So Long Shaft has been notorious for poor ground conditions and high seismicity. It's a very old deep mine. There's old workings everywhere, been opened up everywhere, had a reputation for it. Though this Golden Mile load is off to the side. It's adjacent to all those workings. So I'd be interested to know from a geotechnical standpoint if it's out in fresh virgin area adjacent to the old long existing reserve and all the old stopes there, if that will be geotechnically better for the seismic pressure. It is still deep, but will that be better for seismic pressure? Something to take into consideration. So pure speculation. It looks like they're attacking it from top and bottom, incline and decline coming off the Durkin North existing link, and there's already existing vent infrastructure in there. So that'll be what's happening at the long side of things. Now for Cassini, uh, the company has secured a third underground diamond drill rig for Cassini, and they want to enable drilling Cassini targets that will commence in January, well ahead of schedule. So they've got some high-quality targets. First round of drilling will be targeting the CS4 and CS5 ore bodies, the upper portions of that, which are at the bottom of Cassini, which are still open at depth. Cassini resources, 58.2 thousand tonne of contained nickel. I'll go over the resources later. Uh, after that, they're going to then go target Cassini North, which is well adjacent to their new, a new area. So potential for increased resource at the Cassini operations. So to go over the resources and reserves for Mincor, so they've actually got reserves. Cassini, that's the biggest 1.2 million tonne at 3.3% nickel. As I said, that's their high-grade high grade operation for 39,500 tonnes of nickel. Uh, long existing reserves, 136,000 tonne at 3.6% nickel. So there's about 5,000 there. Now, LN04A, so that is the Golden Mile initial load, 475,000 tonne at 2.6% for 12,500 so then the Durkin North is 736,000 at 2.3%. So the higher grade uh, Cassini is the higher grade operation, then the grade does drop off for the Golden Mile and Durkin North operations. So total, their total in reserve, including Mitel and Burnett, they've got 2.96 million tonne at 2.8% nickel for 83,800 contained nickel tonnes in reserves. They've got a lot more in resource as well, but that is the actual reserve, mineable reserves number. So for those of you that don't know, we talk resources and we talk reserves. So resources are either indicated, inferred or measured. Measured is the highest level of confidence. Inferred is the least level of confidence based on the drill, drill data. Now, 
that says what is in the ground, no matter what shape it is. Whereas then you go when you go to a reserve, that is when you put mineable shapes around it and determine the actual extractable piece of ore that you can take out. That is the reserve. So the reserve is always less than the resource. The resource is all the metal that's in there. Once you put shapes around it, because due to regular shapes, you mightn't take one section because it might you might have to mine 10 times the amount of waste just to get that bit of ore and it mightn't be economical. So a reserve, when you, we talk reserves, that is the most confident number for what is actually going to come out of the ground compared to resources. Now the reserves are either proved or probable. So for the so prob proved is the most highly confident, probable is lesser confident of the two. So all of the reserves for Mincor besides 19,000 ton at Mitel are probable. So they're all probable. So 2.94 million ton at 2.8% nickel is the probable reserve. So there you go, a bit of a uh, Bit of oh, the old engineering. The engineering did pay off eventually. See, it's all coming back. Jumbo engineering, it all served a purpose for podcasting. Who would have thought? Right, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that. Thanks very much to Weary and Gilly for coming on and giving a bit of expert analysis. Hope you all have a great weekend. Uh, thanks again too. I want to say thanks to Eric Samuel, founder of Ride the Wave, for first putting the challenge down for AZZ, but he also sent a bit of feedback on the episodes, a few little things that he'd like to hear about, maybe a bit of uh, improvements, different way to say things, and hopefully I've adopted a bit of that today. So stuff like that, I absolutely love. So if you reckon it's shit, or reckon if there's other things I can improve on or that you'd like to hear worded differently, please send them through. I'm all ears. Feedback is how this ship is going to sail into the sunset. How good is it? Right, everyone. Have a good weekend. Talk to you on Monday.